Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How would you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset, and that's when you can reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. Look, it's summertime. Transfer window is coming up. It's gonna get crazy. So if you ever just wanna, again, take a step back and relax, read the transfer rounds, read the gossip rumors, grab a Coors Light. It'll be perfect companion for all those transfer merry-go-rounds. There's only one beer out there that's literally made to chill, and that's Coors Light. The mountains on the bottles and cans even turn blue when the beer is cold. That way you always know when it's time to chill. When you need to hit reset, just open a Coors Light. It's mountain cold refreshment made to chill. Now that it's finally hot in Minnesota, I'm gonna be looking for an easy beer to drink, and Coors Light is perfect for that. It's lagered, it's cold filtered, and it's cold packaged. It's, again, made to chill. It's crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies perfect for a moment to unwind and so when you want to hit reset reach for the beer that's made to chill get coors light in the new look delivered straight to your door with drizzly or instacart coors brewing company golden colorado and as always celebrate all right so you're listening to this podcast right now london is blue and guess what we host our podcast on anchor.fm that's right if you're looking to host your own podcast this is the easiest free way to get started. This has got a content creation tool allows you to record and the podcast right from a phone. That's right, don't even need a computer, but you can do it there too. They'll also help you distribute it, which is probably the most challenging part. You don't want to have to mess with that. They got you covered. You can get it right on a Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well as any other place podcasts are found. And you know what? You can monetize it too. Make a little cash for sharing your great content with the world. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one individual place. So you know what? Head over to your app store, download the Anchor app, or head to anchor.fm to get started if you're ready to launch your podcast and make it happen. Episode 12 of the London is Blue podcast. Welcome back, Chelsea fans. You're listening to the London is Blue fan cast, where we cover all of the important topics in the EPL. Chelsea. No, seriously, that's it. That's all that matters. Welcome back, Chelsea fans, to another episode of No More International Breaks. (laughs) As always, I'm joined by Dan and Nick. And Dan, happy birthday. Oh, well, uh, well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. (laughs) Dan, uh, Dan, how old are you now? I am a 30, so that, oh, uh, boy. you know, uh, I know you guys have uh, a couple of years to catch up on me, but, uh, you know, time pauses for no man, and uh, thankfully that means that we get, you know, regular Chelsea football back. Exactly. We are excited to be back, and um, this week we're going to be covering if anything actually happened during the international break, Chelsea's return to the Premier League against West Brom, and we even have a special guest this week with Joe Tweeds. We will be getting to that interview in just a second. All right, Chelsea fans, due to editing, we are going to jump into our interview with Joe Tweeds right now. Here we go. Hey guys, we are very excited to uh, to bring our next guest on the pod. I think you probably all know and love Joe Tweeds. Joe, welcome to uh, to the London is Blue podcast. Hey guys, thanks for having me on. Absolutely, man. Uh, I know that we're uh, all big fans of your work on We Ain't Got No History. 
Um, for the listeners who might not know you or know your work, what is your uh, Chelsea background and how did you get started on We Ain't Got No History? So Chelsea background, um, God, I am probably the third or fourth generation Chelsea fan in my family. Um, my great granddad was probably 1910, 1915, was started to in the club. Um, and it's really filtered on through there. Um, first real memories of games probably from 1994 onwards, so the FA Cup final defeat to Manchester United 4-0 wasn't a particularly great day. But everything <laughs> since then has been has been pretty rosy for us. So I guess I've uh, I've been alive in quite a decent time to be a Chelsea fan. So yeah, um, you know 94 onwards, pretty much fair. You know, kind of fairly decent memories of of those games, but. Yeah, no, no, been it's been a pleasure, really, particularly in the Roman era. Um, you know, the the kind of transformation of the club has been been pretty special to witness. Um, even probably the late '90s team, where we were kind of challenging for the title. But yeah, Chelsea background is is kind of that. In terms of writing, um, probably like a few people, really, I I sort of got into Twitter probably 2011ish. Um, got asked by someone to put together some thoughts for for an article on one of their websites, and it kind of spiraled from there, really. Um, I've always fancied myself as a bit of a writer. Um, probably the only person who blogs who doesn't actually want to be a journalist. I'm not entirely sure how that works out, but uh, <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's it's a pretty good hobby. It keeps me it keeps me sane. So you know, I work with a lot of numbers on a daily basis. So to actually use words is, is quite a treat for me. Um, and yeah, um, started the blog probably two maybe two years ago now. Plains of Armoria. Um, quite fortunate that I am fairly pally with Rick Glanville, who is the club's official historian and was having a chat with him about potential names for a blog. Um, didn't want to go down the usual route of, of having the bridge or a lion or some sort of connotation. It was fairly, um, fairly, I suppose, fairly obvious to uh, to Chelsea. And he brought up this fantastic quotation about Peter Osgood from uh, Raquel Welch about how uh, Peter Osgood would always be remembered on the plains of Almeria. And uh, I thought, actually, you know what, that's that's pretty cool. So I'll go with that. And uh, yeah, POA was born. Um, Fairly lucky that people like uh, Tim Rolls, who is the current Chelsea Supporters Trust chairman, yep. um, he writes to me quite regularly in some of his stuff on, on kind of Chelsea in sort of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Particularly of I suppose people of our generation, it's pretty interesting to kind of see where the club has come from and also really how football has changed. So he's uh, he's frequently writes to me and one of the chaps who used to write for me, a chap called Sam, actually now is uh, employed by the club as a writer. So I'm not necessarily saying that we uh, we lead to great things, but um, you know he's obviously done quite well out of that. So yeah, um, I got approached by Graham Macari at SB Nation and, and, and we ain't got no history in the summer um, about a potential link up between the two sites. I've known Graham for uh, ages now, it seems, but uh, he's, he's always been a really good guy. And I think he was looking for maybe more of a, a features writer for, for We Ain't Got No History. And yeah, it seemed a, a really good time to link the two sites up. Um, I was looking for somewhere potentially with more kind of you know day-to-day content and you know a lot bigger readership really to try and get uh, some of the pieces out there. And it's uh, it's gone pretty well this season, I think. So we will see what the future holds. But uh, no, it's been, a, it's been a really good good link up and uh, hopefully long may it uh, continue. Well, I I second that. Your uh, your work is is something that I think we all marvel at, and uh, especially for uh, we're in a, a Buzzfeedy type of of time on the internet. It's nice yeah. to have some of the longer form pieces that are out there that you can really sink your teeth into. So, um, for those, I mean, and you were talking about you know how football's changed from even the '80s to to where it is now. Um, can we talk about the the Stanford Bridge atmosphere issue? Um, sure. On our last on our last pod, we brought up a a few solutions and and kind of want to hear from you 
what, if any, do you have? Um, would it be you know lower ticket prices, standing terraces? Uh, what's what's in your mind going to make the atmosphere kind of come alive again at the bridge? I think probably one of the the big things to point out is that at Stamford Bridge in particular, and probably kind of in contrast to our away support. I mean, our, our away support is phenomenal. They're they're very loud. They're very vocal. But the the age difference is absolutely huge. Um, if you sit in kind of an area that you've been sitting in for a long time at Stamford Bridge, you kind of look around and you see chaps in sort of their 40s and 50s and you know into their 60s who have obviously done their bit for the club previously, but are not going to be as vocal as sort of a bunch of deranged, drunken sort of 18-year-olds, which is kind of uh, <laughs> you know that's that's where kind of a lot of the noise is generated from. And I think the club have kind of really missed a trick, particularly around students. So you know anyone sort of under 21, maybe giving them a kind of a, a reduced season ticket or, or at least putting them in some sort of area. Um, I think Crystal Palace are probably a very good example of a yep. club that's sort of given kind of a specific area to a set of fans who pretty much sing for 90 minutes non-stop. And, you know, there are lulls in the in the game where the rest of the crowd don't join in with them, but they kind of keep the uh, they kind of keep the atmosphere going. And when, when the entire stadium gets going with them, it's pretty, it's pretty special. Um, whether we'll be that sort of, you know, kind of formal and say this is a, this is a section for people who want to sing or or something along those lines, I really think that it probably starts just looking at the ages of fans. Um, you know, for, for whatever reason, it seems the away crowd is a lot younger. Um, you know, not, not a lot of people can afford 50, 60 pound tickets to, yeah. to go to games, particularly if you're a student. And uh, yeah, you know, I was quite fortunate that my, um, my season ticket wasn't as expensive as it is now. Um, so I'm not sure I would have paid for that unless I had a, you know, two part-time jobs or whatever. But and that, that's probably one of the, you know, that's kind of the, the real big issue. I think that, you know, the, the ticketing pricing, particularly for younger fans, um, you know, I don't think that there's that sort of indoctrination of, of fans from a young age now who, you know, I've, I've been going since I was, you know, less than 10. I can remember going from 10. I know people have gone since that age and we've kind of grown up at Chelsea. Um, I don't think you can actually afford to necessarily do that now. Um, you know, if you're a, a parent who's going with your partner and you've got three kids, you're looking at you know 200 pound on tickets, which for the, the kind of the most you know sort of normal family is not necessarily something that they can do on a weekly basis. So it's almost like a luxury treat than actually something that you do on a weekly basis. And perhaps the connection that you get from going on a weekly basis to when you go every now and then perhaps isn't as strong. So I mean, there's you know there's a few things really kind of around the pricing and the ages. Um, I think probably the, the other thing that you would have to say is that when you are at away games, you do pretty much stand for the entire game. And there is something to say for that standing kind of encourages you to be a bit more raucous, encourages yep. a bit more of a, a kind of a camaraderie between people in the in the sort of stands. Um, if you're kind of sitting, it's, it's almost like you're watching theatre or entertainment. And, you know, I could get that not everyone wants to go to a game and jump around and shout and scream, but for those who do, and you know, I think particularly at Stamford Bridge, there are certain areas where that's kind of an expected part of what you're meant to be doing, particularly in the Matthew Harding Lower, for example. Yep. Um, you do pretty much stand and sing and stuff like that, and being told to sit down, it kind of does dampen the atmosphere a bit. Um, so, yeah, I mean, probably the, the three strands there, you're looking at really kind of, you know, the ticket pricing for uh, is a wider issue, but particularly for younger people. And also the, the kind of standing issue as well. I think that, that would be go a long way, even if they piloted it in certain areas. To really, uh, you know, help reduce the kind of it would, it would also reduce ticket prices, but it also increased the, the the atmosphere there as well. You know, I think Mourinho was was right in pointing it out. Some people were a bit annoyed about his comments, but I think you could tell by the reaction at West Brom the first half in particular, considering it was pretty much a dead rubber of a game, um, was was pretty special. So, yeah, it was, it was a pretty decent atmosphere. So he obviously got the reaction that he wanted, but whether it's going to be sustainable without the club really looking to yeah. help people out, I'm not too sure. 
So a follow-up question to that would be, would an expansion of Stanford Bridge or, or whatever the plan is um, kind of facilitate the movement towards uh, a little bit more of an active atmosphere? Um, I think so, yeah. I think if they were to expand and they potentially reviewed kind of seating policy, I think that there's a lot of limitations with what the club can do because of the, the kind of surrounding area and kind of where they can put away fans and you know they, well, they've got to be able to put them in a safe location and stuff like this. So it'd be interesting to see if they were to actually expand the stadium what that would look like because you go to some away grounds, particularly at Newcastle, and you kind of get tucked up in the guard, sort of you know, particularly high up and miles away from the action. So although they may make some noise, it doesn't necessarily travel you know throughout the rest of the ground. They can't influence the referee or the linesman, or you know, they don't feel close to the game. So having them behind a goal or in the corner is you know sometimes can be a little bit um, influential in terms of they're they're very close to the pitch, obviously particularly when players are taking corners. So be interesting, I think, in terms of the away fans' relocation and. Also, I suppose if they were to have more seats uh, or more people in the ground, whether they would then take the viewpoint that they could legitimately subsidise tickets for younger fans and actually try and introduce a culture where they come every week instead of every now and then. Um, that would be pretty interesting to see. Absolutely. So, Joe, looking at um, other stadiums, I guess, as a reference point, what is your favorite away stadium to travel? And it sounds like from our conversation beforehand, it might not necessarily be the stadium as much as the trip to the stadium. Yeah, so I think, you know, the probably the most impressive away stadium, it actually probably used to be Highbury that we used to go to. I mean, it used to be kind of the most aesthetically beautiful place. It was such a lovely ground, very sort of old school, very classic stadium. Um kind of with Arsenal sort of flashy, sort of plasticky, kind of modern, all, you know, all singing, all dancing stadium now. The kind of the difference is, is is almost, you know, it's, I know a lot of old school Arsenal fans who are still not massively happy that they kind of left this sort of, it was almost like an icon of English football stadium to go to, a stadium that you could be, you know, at any part in, of the world in any country for any different sport. It doesn't necessarily feel like it's a, it was built for football, which I think some of them have the, probably have the you know the kind of a slightly annoyance about um, but the kind of away games really I think for people who go regularly it's it's all about the day um, you know you can go to some of the most ridiculous places in the country no offense to anyone who's listening from to, you know who, who lives in Stoke but um, Stoke in particular is, is is a very strange place to visit but I think people who go to the away game for some reason always tend to have a fantastic time um, no, the stadium there, the atmosphere is, is, is pretty good with the home fans, but the day out always seems to be particularly good, and as well as pretty much any ground in the Midlands as well. So you know, the train ride from Birmingham to London is uh, an hour and a half or something. It's not particularly great, so you tend to get a good good few numbers up there. You know, and there's, there's some pretty decent places to go out afterwards and, and before the game as well. Um, you know, the, the early morning drinking culture of away fans who start drinking at nine in the morning before a game is obviously pretty uh, pretty kind of, I suppose, the, the standard thing to do, particularly on, on train trip to Birmingham. But um, probably if I was to name one ground that I've been to that I've absolutely loved, probably probably the New Camp um, for the, the two-all game, and I went there previously as well. Um, might have been the one-all, I think, where Lampard chipped the keeper, but yep. it's it's so big and so impressive, and it's it's just, it's enormous, and you kind of feel very insignificant being in, in the crown there, but I think probably attaching it to memories, particularly Torres's, you know, Torres's winner was was pretty, you know, amazing. Seeing that and then, and then whatever, having that actually go in, um, that was pretty amazing. So probably probably the new camp I think was pretty special. Um, 
uh, again, I think we'll probably always have a lot of fond memories of, of Munich as well. Um, the Allianz Arena is, is absolutely phenomenal and everything that that now holds for the club. But, um, you know, as a stadium, that was that was uh, incredible as well. Yeah, so now that we've talked about your you know, favorite place to maybe go watch an away game, what about the most miserable away experience? You know, where would you not want to go to, to watch a game? Oh, God. Um... <laughs> Not to create haters for you, but to <laughs> understand maybe where fans should shy away from going. Um, I think yeah. I think uh, it's it's strange because some of the some of the places that you perhaps have kind of I don't know sort of presuppose ideas about where you're heading, they always turn out to be the better games. Um, I I've never really been a fan of going to uh, West Ham. Now, London Derby, you know, it's always a pretty good atmosphere there, but the, the ground, I mean, I, it's probably because I went there one, I think possibly on a boxing day one year, and uh, it, it was the coldest I've ever been anyway. It, it was it was like one degree out, but it felt about minus 20, um, and having sort of just a jacket and a t-shirt on particularly wasn't the, the cleverest idea. <laughs> I remember like coming out of the ground and looking around everyone, I think it was the game where um, they might have had someone on loan in goal when he played an absolute stormer and we drew the game and it felt like we like we'd been beaten and yeah um, never really been a fan of West Ham there's you know there's not really a lot to do around the ground and it's it's always pretty um, pretty feisty not necessarily in a, in a bad way but it's 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 just a it's not a particularly nice place to visit so, um, so we'll see if that changes when they move into the shiny Olympic Stadium but. You know, sort of Upton Park itself. It's just a, a pretty horrific place. And then one of the one of the the stands, if you in the away and it's to the left. I'm not sure which stand it is, but it it looks like it could be on a park anywhere. And you know, in the UK, you kind of miss it on the on the TV because I think that's where they shoot the game from. But if you were to actually look at it, it, it actually resembles a it resembles a cow shed. So it's not the uh, it's not the nicest place to visit. Oh, wow. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, kind of more to the the squad that we have. You know, what's your feeling in relating this squad in terms of a comparison of quality to the squads that you've observed? And, you know, where do you think maybe there's some additional tinkering left to do? So, you know, in January or in summer, you know, are there moves that you feel like we need to make and where do you where do you stand there? I think the beauty that we've got this season is that the team is currently so well balanced and I think, you know, probably the strongest in the country, even, you know, even playing City now, kind of the strongest 11 versus each other. But there's still a lot of scope, I think, for improvement. Um, even sort of individually as players, if we look at them, first of all, you know, Eden Hazard is possibly on his way to becoming one of the best players that's ever played at Stamford Bridge. His ability to beat people, his centre of gravity, his dribbling, his just skill and the fact that he just draws so many players to him every time he touches the ball is just insane. Um, but even him, you know, if he could shoot, um, you know, he scores some brilliant goals, but the amount of positions he gets in, if he could finish, um, you know, he would be sort of moving from that kind of maybe third, second tier to closer to the sort of Messi's and Ronaldo's of this world. I think they're just a lot more consistent finishers. Um, same with people like William and Oscar. You know, I think William is, is becoming one of my favourite players at the club, his work ethic and you know, what he actually provides with on the pitch is amazing, but I think for someone that, particularly when we saw him at Shakhtar Donetsk, he was so skillful and was yeah. a, a real attacking talent. I think he's probably gone a little bit to the to the other way in terms of being, you know, very defensively fantastic and and helping pressing and stuff like that. So there's a few things tinkering. I think within the team, I think Oscar has probably now found that balance between being 
um, more attack-minded and also being very diligent in, in what he's asked to do defensively. And hopefully, if William can do a similar thing, perhaps you know, with a bit more to the sort of offensive side of his game, then then that would be fantastic. But it would probably be that area that I look at to sign someone. I think in the sort of right wing slot. Um, you probably want someone if Hazard isn't going to be someone who's going to get you 20, 25 goals a season. He might set them up, or he might, you know, sort of be kind of a tertiary effect in in causing goals. But as a direct finisher, if we had someone potentially like Alexis Sanchez or or someone like Marco Rouse, although I know he's recently been injured, um, someone of that kind of quality on the right hand side. And it's not like we can't afford them, you know, 30, 40 million pound player. Having someone of that quality on the right. Particularly with Costa up front and Oscar would be would be pretty sensational. Um, I still feel, even though I think Fabregas and Matic are, are absolutely wonderful to watch, that there are certain times where we play games where we are a little bit too open in front of the the back four for my liking. Um, I think Matic does a lot of covering work, particularly for Fabregas. There was some probably for the the Emery Chango um, at Liverpool where I think Fabregas was pressing on the right wing and Matic was kind of left with sort of two players and he missed the. You know, missed the sort of cutout of the pass, and Chan was straight through on our back four. There's things like that where I think, you know, I'd like someone, you know, being a bit greedy, someone of, of Paul Pogba's ability or someone of that kind of stature yep. who could slot in alongside Matic, um, push Fabregas forward in those types of big games where the midfield is a little bit more crucial, um, and you don't need him to be able to play wonderful passes from from deeper in midfield would be would be really interesting to see. Um, and uh, for a player potentially, um, I mean, it really depends on on JT to be honest. Um, I think he's had some sort of insane renaissance in the past sort of two seasons under Mourinho, where you're kind of always expecting him to, okay, is this the season where we're going to phase him out? Is this the season where he's going to become a rotation player? And again, this season, I think he's he's probably playing as well as he has done. Um, I wrote recently how he's kind of changed, how he's how he's become a defender. He's being a lot less aggressive and more kind of a reader and a sweeper and, and kind of things out and being more of an organiser. Previously, when he was younger, you saw him flying into tackles, like smashing through centre-forwards to win headers and being a very aggressive player. So the way he's changed has, has probably extended his career by, by some time, but there's always that fear that if he does eventually go, not only to be lose a fantastic player, but... He's such a good organiser at the team, and I think it's something you probably appreciate when you're in the stadium. Is that if you, you know, kind of away from the camera, when the uh, action's at the other end of the pitch, he is always communicating with everyone around him: goalkeeper, right back, left back, midfield, telling them where they should be, positioning them, moving them around the pitch. And I like Cahill. Um, I think there are some things again that he needs to be improved on, definitely. But I think we'll, we will miss someone of, of Terry's ability in the back. And the, the problem being is that there's not that many great centre-backs around now. Um, the way the game's changed in terms of being more about pressing and, and forcing mistakes out of opponents and capitalising on them, having ball-playing centre-backs is always a massive bonus. And I think there's more of an onus on being able to be, play as a defender than there is as necessary to defend. So whether we'll be able to find a, a replacement who can get anywhere near Terry is probably unlikely. But I suppose that's where, where Kurt Zuma and potentially someone else... Um, may step in in the future but yeah you know being greedy I'd like a centre-back but in January I think you know if we can potentially do some business particularly in the right wing area I think there's probably a few players who who could come in there I do like I like Draxler at Schalke as well I think he's a very good player um, mm-hmm. but it's really now you know you're, you're it's really much a case of tinkering now I think you know this team is definitely good enough to win the league at the moment but if you want to be go a little bit more quality not necessarily of play but of finishing in that in that sort of band of three behind Costa, um, you know, I, th- I think we'll be at a point where we can create chances against Real Madrid, against Bayern Munich, against the top sides. But I'm not 100% confident that Hazard will take it, or that Oscar will take it, or that William will take it. Whereas you look at someone like Alexis Sanchez at Arsenal, when he's pretty much carrying them single-handedly at the moment, 
if he gets a chance, it's pretty much going to go in, and it was probably the same with Rouse and, and other players of that sort of style. So I think we're in that sort of band of three where one very good finisher away, whether Hazard can develop into that player, um, of being you know almost pretty much exceptional in that front four. And, yeah, I mean, just from my personal standpoint, I've always liked having um, the ability to go with two physical players in midfield, but I'd like Matic, and, and Pogba would be, a, would be an absolute dream signing. I think they would... You're pretty much boss, you know, boss, boss the league. So, you know, maybe two, two players. I don't know if we'll actually do anything in January, but it'll be interesting to see nonetheless. I think I would be frightened to go up against your FIFA Ultimate Team if uh, <laughs> it's made up in the way you're composing the conversation here. <laughs> Um, you know, speaking to that point where you mentioned about JT too and the, the renaissance he's had recently, you know, who is your thought for that next captain? You know, when we do see a retirement of JT yeah. from the club, um, I have probably two in mind. One of them is probably not a vocal captain, but I think in terms of influence in the game, and particularly probably the role he's sort of taking a little bit more often now is the Manu Matic. Um, he gave the the team talk before the game at Liverpool and also at half-time. Um, he's becoming one of those players that's sort of moving into being sort of a Michael Ballack-type player in the team, kind of a quiet leader on the pitch, someone who can be vocal if he needs to be. But he's got the physical stature to be a, be a Chelsea captain. He's got the ability. He's, what, 25, 26. He's going to be here for a long period of time. Um, he would be my sort of dark horse to be captain. Um, if we're not looking at perhaps someone like Cahill or Ivanovic, who might likely you know, take the armband or whatever. Um, and the other one actually would be um, would be Thibaut Courtois. Um, and not, not a lot of people are uh, that happy with, with goalkeepers being captains. Um, but I think from a personality standpoint, some of the interviews that he's done this season, particularly for the Belgian national team and, and about his time at Chelsea, um, he looks like he is going to be sort of the kind of the next Didier Drogba or the next John Terry in terms of how he talks about the game and, and how he can command the dressing room. So I think he's going to be a very significant player for us. Um, whether he needs the armband or not, I think it's probably the case with Drogba that Drogba does about wanting to be the you know the vocal leader when Terry retires or when Drogba goes. He wants to step up into that area. And that for Belgium already, you know, he's already telling the team you know, that, that they're not playing well enough and I think he's in a position where he can or he feels that he has the you know, the ability or the standing within that team to say that those types of things so he would also be quite interesting and I think probably the like, the most likely one or, or well, perhaps not the most likely one but probably the one that, that might annoy Arsenal fans the most would be, would be <laughs> Fabregas um, yeah. you know you kind of forget where he's been around so long that he's not actually that old um, yeah you know, and he's never he's never really relied on pace, so he's not going to be one of those people like you know, the, perhaps like Gerard, who sort of gets into their thirties and loses a bit of pace and becomes absolutely redundant. Now he's uh, he's a very intelligent player. You know, the way Mourinho spoke about him being connected to his brain during a game was was a little bit strange, but you know, nonetheless, <laughs> I think it's it's one of those things where I think Fabregas has got the intelligence and he seems to be really enjoying his football here. So. You know, yeah. He's been captain of Arsenal. I think he's, he's captain sort of Spain under 21 level. He's got that sort of thing about him where he can be a captain. He's, he's quite spiky as well, which I like. Um, but it, it's, it's interesting because I think now there, there's a lot of leadership characters emerging within the team. I think Costa leads in his sort of aggressive warrior, like don't touch him way because he'll punch you in the face sort of mentality <laughs> that he had. But he, he, you know, he, he kind of leads that entire area of the team. You know, Hazard is sort of, Hazard's kind of moving into it from sort of a, a kind of importance to the team area. Fabregas, Matic, you know, Branagh, uh, sort of right back, has always has always had that about him. Terry, Cahill, you know, you can go through the team and name. There's probably six or seven people now who have actually moved into 
being important players. Even even as Philly Guetta's got that sort of yep. steady, almost Philip Philip Lahm-esque kind of presence on the pitch where nothing gets past him ever. So, you know, why not give him the captain's armband? So it's you know, there's quite a few there. Um my if I was gonna narrow it down, I would give it to Matic, but I'm not sure if that would be the case. But he would be my my choice. Yeah, I, I'm right there with you and, and we've talked about Matic not only being our most important player this year, and there there are a plethora of players that you can choose from, um, like you were saying, but uh, that he might be our best player this year. No, I'd agree. Um, and there, he, his performances have been outstanding. A, a follow up to the to the Hazard uh, question I have for you is, you know, I, I think that we've all kind of seen Mourinho push Hazard more than any other player on the team in the last yep. couple of seasons. Would giving him the captain's armband be like the final step into him kind of becoming a world-class leader like a Ronaldo or a Messi? It's quite an interesting one. I think one of the kind of interviews that I thought was pretty uh, spot on in the summer, there was a, I can't remember who wrote it or which newspaper out that it was, but there was a, a kind of meeting between Hazard's parents, or Hazard's father, I should say, and Mourinho, and he yep. was saying about, you know, he needed to basically keep working with Mourinho that Mourinho needed to sort of drive him on to the next level and I'm not sure whether the, the captain armband would necessarily be sort of the, the almost like the finishing score or the kind of the the last sort of little point that he needs to go to the next level I think for Hazard he now needs to realize that you know he he's so talented and he's so good on the ball and he, and he you know he, even defensively now I mean at Anfield to what we would tee one up in the last minute see him running sort of 30 40 yards just to make a block you know to on, on the touchdown I mean it, he would never have even run five yards when he first comes to the club. So to actually see him chasing back, considering how good he is, to actually see him chasing back and winning tackles is, is, is crazy. But for me, for him just to take that next step up, all he has to do is work on a, on his finishing. I mean, again, against West Brom, there was a, a kind of thing where he was sort of on the, the kind of the edge of the area. He sort of slipped between two players, opened his body up and tried to put it in the top corner. It, it, it blocked off a player and went off for a corner. But... Even the second half, again, he got put through on goal, and I think he sort of hesitated, and he didn't know whether he was going to go around the goalie or try and chip him. And I think what's strange for him probably is that he's such a natural footballer that you know he's everything he does, it's not convoluted in terms of trying to overcomplicate overcomplicate things. When he does a trick or when he does some sort of skillful bit of play, it's always because that's the thing that's going to get the ball forward, or that that's what's going to be the player. It's not really just he's not doing it just to do it, which I think a lot of young players or a lot of players that you see do 55 step overs and end up passing the ball back to the holding midfielder which just completely defeats the object of doing the 50 step overs but yeah. I think he you know it's it's not a natural thing for him to be a finisher um, I think at the game against Maribor again where he got you know put himself through on goal and he, he sort of just kind of chipped it at the goalie's chest so it's got to be frustrating for him because I said he's such a natural player that everything must come so simply yet when he's through on goal it's never 100% that he's going to put it away so you know, there's uh, again some there's some great material out there about Rennie Mullenstein working with Ronaldo when he was at Manchester United about how they were going to transform him from being this really top player into being one of the world's best. And he would spend hours in training working on his finishing. They would color code the goal, and he would you know he would have when he was in specific areas, his mind would flick click to the the color that he was meant to be doing, and he would be aiming for that area. And it would it would all become almost like a robotic process. Um, same with with Thierry Henry as well, you know, to bring hate to bring his name up on the Chelsea podcast, but he <laughs> he he always said that when he was through on goal, he would work on exactly the same type of finish from the exactly the same area. So if he was running through on goal and he was in a specific channel, he knew that he would open his body out and put it to the right, or he knew that he would give the goal to the eyes and put it to the left. But it was all repetition, and I think 
that's all he has to do now is to work on that that level of finishing. And because if he starts taking these chances during your game, he's going to be scoring one or two goals. You know, he could be getting a goal a game at this rate of, of how he's playing at the moment. So, you know, he's for me, he is that that away from from probably moving into kind of the you know perhaps Iron Robin sort of level, maybe maybe a little bit above Iron Robin. Um, in terms of what he can do, but it's it's going to be interesting. I think you know he he for me could be potentially be a captain. Um, depends if they uh, you know how long he's he's going to be potentially staying at the club. Hopefully we'll be uh, tying him down to a very long contract soon, and he realizes that potentially going to Real Madrid or Spain or wherever who who obviously will be looking at him in the next few years is is not the best place for him. But you know long term captain potentially, but I think his his you know world class potential should be realized very very soon. Because so I think he's got he's got the work ethic. It's just now about f- sort of honing that that final step in his game, which would be to just be a bit more of a consistent finisher. I mean, so we've discussed now that Mourinho's had such a positive impact not only in Hazard but I think the entire squad of just his vision in um, and his ability to build it. You know, Mourinho's talked about he's going to be here forever. You know, he's two years in. We're definitely on the right trajectory. Do you think he'll stay? You know, for ten years. I think if he wins the league title this season, um, or wins a trophy this season, I think the potential is there is for him to to stay a very long time. Um, you know, I think the the reality of of how he came back to the club, I think there is a definite bond there between him and and Chelsea, and whether he will bounce around clubs, I don't see him doing that now. Um, you know, I mean, what other top jobs are there? You know, Italy is is kind of falling away in terms of importance. Germany, you've got one club, which is Bayern Munich, which you know, given how how pretty much it's you know you can put out any number of their players in any sort of random assortment of positions, and they will probably win a game. Is probably not the biggest challenge for him. <laughs> you know, even Spain. I mean, Barcelona are very unlikely to appoint him as manager. He's unlikely to go back to Real Madrid. Is he going to go from Chelsea to Manchester United? I mean, you know, there's not really um, there's no, there's nowhere really for him to go now. He's proven himself in, in in Italy. He won the league there. He's won the league in Spain. This is kind of the first opportunity that he's had where. He could almost mould the team in his own image from the get-go. I mean, we sort of had last season, which you know was a year of transition. He was kind of weeding the players out, ones who would fit with his philosophy, ones who would fit with what he was looking to do going forward. And I think this season, the, the, the swiftness of the business in the summer and, and just how he managed to go in and identify the weak points and get all the players that he wanted to do very quickly was amazing. And we're definitely reaping the benefits of that. Um, I'd like to see him bring through some of the, the academy players. I think if he wins trophies this season, he will get um, some time to bring through some of those players. I think it's important that they do come through as well. And I do think he's probably the right man to do it. I mean, one of the criticisms you always hear of him is that he never brings through young players or you know, he, he never really does stuff with, with young players. But I don't know necessarily how much weight that, that holds. You know, he was pretty much in kind of one of the key people in developing Rafael Varane at Real Madrid and I think he'd be one of the first people who gave Balotelli his sort of starts in, in Inter and um, you know he's he's playing Nathan Ake you know he's played Christensen he's playing Zuma you know so may, maybe there's a bit of a change of, of tact in, in how he's, he's managing some of these younger players but I'd, lo- I'd love to see him here for the next 10 years if he then wants to go manage Portugal or, or whatever he wants to do as his, his retirement fund then that's completely obviously up to him but you know if he's here for the next 10 years I would be very surprised if we don't win another European Cup or two, you know, if we don't win another couple of league titles, another couple of cups. But be also really interesting if he can bring through those those youth team players while also being very competitive as well, because I think that's that's going to be the uh, the balancing act that he will need to try and maintain somehow. Just my recommendation: don't go to Russia because apparently they can't pay their managers. Just yeah. <laughs> Avb. Well, I don't have that much sympathy for him, but uh, yeah. <laughs> 
He's, uh, he's been a castaway for a while. So thinking yeah. about those individuals or the talent that you're talking about getting promoted over the potential decade of Mourinho, you know, who, who are you looking at right now to see promotion into our side within the next you know, one to two seasons? And then maybe who are you kind of looking at a longer timetable of, I, I know this person's really young, but I'm excited for them in yeah. three or four seasons. I think the long-term player that I'm really excited about, and, and anyone who actually knows me personally will know that this is no surprise, but um, Ruben Loftus-Cheek, one of our midfielders currently, I think he's 18 or he plays for our under-18s or under-19 team, he is absolutely exceptional. He's such an exceptional player, and the, the thing that sets him apart from a lot of youth team players is he's already 6'3", 6'4". He's already got the physical size that you would associate with a Jose Mourinho midfielder. And the more you watch him, particularly if you have the ability to watch him for 90 minutes, the eerie similarity between watching him and Michael Ballack is almost, you know, you, could, you can't really tell them apart. They're sort of the same running style, the same sort of Rolls-Royce-esque ability on the ball. And I think this season, everything seems to have really clicked for him. Um, he was exceptional for England when they beat Italy um, under-19s recently. I think he, he set up a goal and he scored a goal and he just run the show. And even this season, if you have the chance to Google or go on YouTube and find the goal that he set up, I think we were playing Schalke in the under-19 Champions League where he sort of won the ball in his own penalty spot and pretty much ran the entire length of the pitch before giving a pass and that set up a goal. Um, he's becoming a real box-to-box player who's a bit like a Paul Pogba, a bit... You know he's got the he's got the size he's got the range of passing he's he's very skillful very good on the ball and you know long term you're thinking I think he's 18 give it four years you know Matic will be 29 whatever you could you could see him sort of stepping in as that very early 20s player into the squad um, he would be definitely the one to watch um, I could go on ages about him you know Jeremy Boger as well absolutely yeah. phenomenal talent um, very hazard esque in the way he can dribble past people like their training cones. Um, in his own age group, particularly for Chelsea, it's going to be pretty unfair this season having a, an FA Youth Cup team that's going to have Boga, Charlie Masonda, Solanke, Tammy Abraham. I mean, those four players are just dominating, you know, two years up above their age group at the moment. So to have them in the FA Youth Cup is going to be pretty unfair on the teams they're playing against. But Boga as well, I think he's got a very, very bright future. He might be the best youth team player in the country at the moment. Um, you know, he is basically like Eden Hazard, diet, the Diet Coke version currently. He's like the mini version of him. <laughs> you know, amazing balance, amazing ability on the ball. Probably a better finish than Hazard even now. You know, he's a lot more consistent with his shooting, which is, is quite worrying if he does develop anywhere near Hazard's level. Um, Charlie Musonda, another great player. Um, just, I think, recently scored his first goal for Belgium under 21. So he's 17, 18, so he's got a very, very bright future ahead of him. Um, the English lads, Dom Solanke, um, very, very Diego Costarich, which I think will be the, the person that he needs to work with in training and learn from because he not only does he kind of look like Diego Costa before sort of Costa turned into a Colombian drug lord, but he also has <laughs> he has he, he has very he's very similar stylistically. He's got that wonderful movement in the area and he's always in the right place at the right time. Good hold up, good link up, and and he's he's got a real chance. You know, I mean, whenever you see the the youth teams score, it's pretty much always going to be Solanke or Solanke's involved, so he's got a good chance. Um, probably more more kind of immediate, I think Kurt Zuma's got a very, very good chance of developing yeah. into a stellar centre-back. Um, I think particularly if you kind of look at his games in pre-season to where he is at the moment, I mean, the, the development from there to just now, I mean, even playing a handful of games has been absolutely phenomenal to watch. I still think for someone who can jump so high, he needs to time his jumps a little bit better. I mean, he could you know, jump from the edge of the penalty area to probably the halfway line if he really wanted to. But 
he needs to he needs to time um, those sort of things a little bit better. But that'll come with age. But you know, he's got the he's got the probably the perfect physique to be a Premier League centre back. He's got amazing pace. He's ridiculously strong, powerful. He's got a very good build. He just needs to learn off someone like John Terry and. It's quite sort of uh, some weird symmetry in the fact that Terry was a young English player coming into the team, learning from a world-class French centre-back, and now we've got a, a world-class English centre-back teaching a young French centre-back coming into the team who could potentially be the next, the next John Terry. So, I've got very high hopes for Zuma, um, probably more so than any other player, purely because of the physical traits that he has. I mean, he he already looks like a you know a 27-year-old fully grown man, as opposed to the, you know I think he's just turned 20. So, you know, he's got a lot in front of him. Um, Big, big fan of Nathan Ake. Um, yes. You know, for me personally, you know, I think he's possibly a better option than John Obi Mikel at this point in at holding midfield. Um, doesn't necessarily have the same physical size as Mikel, but you know, some of his tackling and his his one-on-one tackling in midfield and his passing as well, and he's very good on the ball. You know, he might now have pushed on ahead of him and become sort of the Manu Matic's understudy. Um, obviously, the dreadlocks are a, are a bonus going back to the Rude Hulley days. So he's obviously. <laughs> He's done something well there, but he, I think he's going to be a really, really good player. Um, depending whether that would be at Chelsea or not, I'd like to think it would be because I think he's, you know, he's very talented and, and I think he could probably play Premier League football now for for a number of teams who needed that sort of little combative midfielder there. Um, trying to think of some other loanies, I'm I'm a really big fan of of Nathaniel Chaloba. Um I'm not yes. sure why he's not getting games at Burnley, but. For me, he's been the really big shining light of the academy, and I think probably the biggest example of how we mismanage youth team players could probably be looked to exactly as him. You know, he had an amazing season as a 17-year-old in the Championship, which is a very physical league, and the fact he was so dominant for Watford was incredible. You know, they nearly got promoted with him playing in midfield. Um, so then send him on on loans where, by all accounts, it was pretty much because the the clubs who were taking him were, were the only ones willing to pay the the full amount of wages for him, as opposed to you know paying a portion of them. Doesn't necessarily seem like we were we had his future uh, completely in mind, rather than just sort of getting some money off the books for you know a year or, or a year and a half. Um, even Burnley now, I think Sean Dyche is not necessarily known for being someone to gamble with with players or to play youth players or to trust people in that sort of area. So, you know, even when I speak to Burnley fans and they tell me that even in the sort of cameos that he's shown, he's been one of their better players. He's probably their only midfielder that can pass the ball more than five yards without losing it. And, and you know, he's he's a, he's a really really good potential player, but he's just not playing enough games. So, you know, I'd like to think that that he would have an opportunity, but it's almost like at Chelsea, unless you're kind of on the cusp of the first team or, or in the first team squad at sort of 2021, we kind of tend to turn a blind eye to them. So I hope he doesn't really get lost in that kind of that sort of struggle, really, because he's still 19. You know, he's got plenty of time to develop, but he needs to get a get to a club where he's going to be playing regularly. So, you know, Zuma, Ake, Chalaba would be the three that I'd like to see come through. Um, I think we've got so many good young, you know, young loanies at the moment. Patrick Bamford is, is scoring goals now in the championship. Yes. Um, we've got a couple on loan in Germany, Holland. So I mean, it's you know, it's a it's a it's a good system. It's just now whether they can come back and actually contribute because not having to spend 30, 40, 50 million pound on players when you've got one coming through the academy uh, for the sort of long term or the longevity of the club, particularly in the financial fair play area, would be would be massive if we if we could get another player of Terry's caliber or close to it um, into the first team from the you know from the academy. So, yeah, you know, long-term prospects, I think, are really good. You know, we've probably got the best academy or one of the best academies in Europe now, particularly on a results basis. So it's just about translating all that success at the under-21 level into, you know, even if we have a, a player every other season coming into the first-team squad, and, you know, by 24, 25, you'll know kind of whether they're, they're going to be good enough. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that's really what we need to be aiming for is, is, is someone who 
by that point in time is, is going to be a first team starter. And I think we've, we've got the players who've got the ability now. So it's just about whether we're going to start entrusting them in positions of responsibility, which hopefully, as I said, if Mourinho sits a long time and he's winning trophies, then he will get that from the board and hopefully be able to, to take that as one of his kind of things that he needs to establish going forward. You know, we appreciate all the insight, Joe. It's been phenomenal. Um, definitely your knowledge uh, of the inside and out of Chelsea is is amazing. So we just want to thank you for that. And again, um, I just read his John Terry uh, profile that he did, and it's on We Ain't Got No History. I tweeted it. You guys need to go check it out um, because it is well worth the time and read. Joe, where can we find you on Twitter? Um, if you go to at Joe Tweeds, J-O-E-T-W-E-E-D-S, um, yeah, I'm uh, I'm on there. I'm fair, not not as active as I was during the week because uh, long working hours, but uh, particularly around the football, you'll tend to find me tweeting pretty much 99.9% about Chelsea. So, yeah, you can find me on there. All right, Chelsea fans, that was our interview with Joe Tweeds, but since he was so great, we asked him to stick around so we could go over our match review against West Brom and everything else. Let's just jump right in to our match against West Brom. It was obviously a return to the Premier League at Stamford Bridge this past Saturday. Final score, as we know, fellows, Chelsea 2, West Brom 0. Dan, how about you run us through the predictions? Well, the the predictions were not good. I think maybe that's what we can kind of lead off there. And Nick and Brandon both thought that we would concede a goal, which we did not. Uh, Nick three one score line. Brandon four one score line had a three zero score line, which was probably the closest uh, to two zero. Which no one on we ain't got no history um, or amongst our illustrious cast hosts were able to guess correctly. Yeah, I so let's just let's take a pause. Dan was on a major hot streak in the last three weeks. Um, I don't think any of us kind of guessed that. Uh, a red card would be uh, a part of a part of our prediction this week, and thus uh, my my one goal concession never could come to play. So, thankfully, clean sheet. Exactly. I think that uh, if Chelsea play would have played the second half instead of just walking around, our predictions would have been closer. But that just was not how it was meant to be. Uh, statistics were all in favor of Chelsea, so we're not even going to bother with that. And then the scoring summary was Diego Costa, 11th minute wonder goal. I can't believe that he can just bring the ball out of the air like that. It's magic. And then Eden Hazard off his short corner. How random was that in the 25th minute? Um, I, I looked down. I, I was actually tweeting in the middle of that happening, and I didn't even realize that it it had happened until the whole bar went crazy. And it was it was a weird goal. They when they showed it at, at halftime on NBC Sports, they had to show it in slow motion because it happened so fast. Yeah, it was very very crazy. Um, so let's go ahead and talk about this stuff. But first, let's go ahead and bring in our new best friend Joe to talk about the <laughs> game with it. Joe, welcome. Hi, guys. All right. So, Joe, were you at this game by chance? Yeah, I was, yeah. All right. So, um, I mean, what was kind of your perspective, obviously, coming off a long international break? Josie Mourinho had kind of called out the crowd. I mean, what was the atmosphere like inside um, Stanford Bridge getting ready for this match? It was quite interesting, actually, because I think particularly during the first half, um, I think Chelsea are probably quite guilty, like most sort of uh, quote-unquote big teams um, these days, 
you know, the the atmosphere when you're playing a fellow sort of top six side is normally pretty decent for the entire game. Fans tend to be up for sort of playing your Arsenal's and the United City, etc. But teams of sort of West Brom stature normally elicit kind of a pretty much dead atmosphere. So, you know, I was kind of curious, particularly with, with Mourinho's comments, how the sort of fan base would react as a whole. And I'd have to say, particularly during the first half, you know, the crowd were, were pretty loud, actually. They were loud consistently during the game, both uh, the Harding end and the, the Shed end, uh, North Stand and South Stand, were particularly loud. And there was even noise from the East and West Stands. So, you know, they actually also managed to sort of wake him from their sort of complacent slumber that Mourinho probably was, uh, was trying to provoke a bit of a reaction from. That's great. So thinking about some of, you know, the players that came out, I was really excited to see, um, you know, Chelsea kind of coming back refreshed after the international break. As we know, uh, Costa and Fabregas didn't go on um, Spain duty, Nick. So, I mean, what do you think kind of the mentality of the team coming out of the tunnel was? Were, you know, were they tired? Were they kind of bored? Or were they just ready to go? They they looked hungry straight away. And that was, um, you know, <clears throat> like Joe said, it, you never know. Uh, kind of what you're going to to get coming out of uh, you know against a, a West Brom, but uh, they looked hungry. Diego Costa looked kind of healthy for the first time in uh, since probably the Burnley game, uh, the beginning of the year. So uh, if that's what a healthy Diego Costa looks like, uh, I'm I'm all for him never playing for Spain again. How about the uh, new Diego Costa flag? I mean, did oh, you guys see that? Yeah, we, we retweeted this. Um, this is from Wazzer CFC on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, someone made a flag, and, and we talked about the, uh, the hopefully true story of Diego Costa's first day at Chelsea where he gathered Terry and Cahill and Ivanovic and, and told them in broken English that I go into battle, you come with me. Someone made a a flag that had that on it. It's absolutely frightening, uh, and should be up in the bridge every week. I mean, I want to you know basically hang it in front of my door to ward off you know potential intruders. <laughs> Did you see it at the bridge, Joe? Um, I didn't see it at the bridge, no, but I saw uh, I saw quite a few photos of it before the game. Uh, Was who is one of the sort of Chelsea youngsters who goes to quite a few home and away games. Yeah. Managed to get the flag done. Yeah, no, it's a really. I actually would love to see it a lot, lot bigger. Um, you know, I think uh, maybe it's a little bit too soon for him to have his banner um, kind of up there with the Terry's, Osgoods, and Droppers of this world. But uh, it'd be nice for him to have a bit of a bigger flag to take to away games. But no, a really, really good idea. I think yeah, again, it's one of those things that, in terms of approving atmosphere and, and along those lines, is a really, uh, a really nice gesture. And particularly, I think Costa being a very new player, you know, I think the crowd have taken to him amazingly well. I mean, he's one of the most chanted names when you go to games now. So seeing him actually have his own little flag and, and hopefully, you know, if he can notice that as well, I think he'll he'll become a lot more um, kind of interlinked with the fans because of that. But it was a, an absolutely great idea and, and really glad that it, that it uh, actually made its way into the bridge. Yeah, great atmosphere stuff. Love the banter, especially, um, you know, with Diego Costa. His mentality is what I think everyone loves about him. And obviously his ability to bring a ball out of the air is unbelievable. Um, I think he did it over and over this game, but uh, his first goal was just—it was beautiful. Um, Oscar getting it out wide, you know, turned up, found uh, Diego Costa in the box, and he buried it. And I mean, that's the perfect start, especially coming off an international break. But um, you know, kind of looking ahead, you know, we've gotten 
November almost out of the way, December coming up, you know, a lot of runs of games. You know, what are our thoughts now after, you know, 12 games in the season, hitting a tough period? Are we still feeling good riding this wave, even though we essentially didn't play the second half? Yeah, I feel I feel yeah. good. I mean, there I don't think there's anything that you can um, that you can really look at to say that there is an extreme deficiency uh, in the team. I mean, the the one thing that you know I, I was kind of concerned about was against ten men in the second half, the team didn't really have a sense of urgency, and probably because they didn't need to. But you would love to see you know a six seven goal you know thrashing you know especially if you have ten men on the field for the better part of 60 minutes. So that would be the one thing I look at is does this team have the killer instinct to go and just bury teams and, and leave no doubt? And uh, the one thing that you would say is, you know, when you look at Diego Costa specifically, um, you would love to see some of our, you know, in a, in a game like West Brom where he didn't really need to play the, you know, I think he played 74 minutes or whatever. Um, he didn't really need to play that much. So you would love to see him get more rest and, and be able to to make it through the Christmas period without a whole lot of, of nagging injuries. I think if you look on the the opposite side of the ball too, I think there's credit that Ben Foster deserves for making that scoreline look more manageable and, and look more respectable than it actually should have been, given the amount of shots we had on target and the amount of near misses and near chances we had. Well, that number of shots on target was eight. And we had a total of 16 shots. I mean, there's there's no doubt that Ben Foster probably had a career game for himself um, looking into it. But uh, overall, um, let's go ahead and get some impressions. So overall, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best, we'll start with you, Joe. How would you rate Chelsea's performance? I'd probably say the first, the first 30 minutes would be a 10. I mean, I think that first, first probably half an hour, that was probably the best I've seen us play in a long, long time. We were absolutely exceptional. You know, I think Ben Foster, even after the game, said that they couldn't actually get anywhere near us. It was almost embarrassing at times. You know, his own words saying it was a little bit embarrassing at times. Um, I think he actually said we were the best team that he's actually played against. So, I mean, the first 30 minutes was almost, you know, exceptional. Some of the football we were playing was was just unbelievable to watch. The, the chance, I think, where... Terry nearly scored from a corner where Hazard and Fabregas seem to be reenacting some sort of FIFA YouTuber video where they were just passing it between themselves as they were running towards the goal was pretty insane. But I don't know. I think probably one of the one of the traits of a Mourinho team is that particularly second half, you know, we've got a big game against Schalke during the week, and you know the foot was definitely taken off the gas, and maybe it was just an exercising, uh, conserving as much energy as possible. So I mean, overall maybe a six or seven. I mean, it was so so comfortable. Dan. You know, I would go with a a seven. I think you know, similar to what Joe was saying, is that the the first half, of the you know, the first thirty minutes before we ended up going to uh, eleven versus ten was enjoyable. It was you know, you, Joe talked about the atmosphere in Stamford Bridge, and I think you actually could feel that energy coming out of the uh, the speakers. At least when I was watching the match, that the audit you know auditorium and the crowd sound was coming through, and then you just saw it taper off throughout the game. And there was just a lack of drive to kind of finish it out on a you know a three or a four or five. All right, and then Nick, what are you thinking? I, I mean, in terms of dominance, it was it was like an eight or a nine. Um, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of trouble um, given to Chelsea by West Brom. Uh, so I would say you know from that perspective, it was completely bossed from beginning to end uh, without a whole lot of of um, 
trouble in the middle. But uh, you know, obviously, as as everyone said, you'd like to see you know Hazard kill off a couple of the chances that he had. You know, Diego Costa had a couple that uh, were just bare misses, and uh, there are a few things that this team has to work on. But um, you know, given the starting lineup that we put out there, I thought it was very. Uh, Jose Mourinho knows the the threat that West Brom poses to uh, to Chelsea managers, so uh, it was a very strong lineup, and and they killed the game off effectively. Yeah, I can agree with that. I mean, I would give them, you know, I I'd say a seven and a half, just because in the end Chelsea went out, got their two goals, and then were able to just maintain the rest of the game. You know, from a game management standpoint, I think they did great. Um, you know, they didn't ever really let West Brom be dangerous. So they were containing, um, just containing the lead. And like you said, you know, there's no need to push it, maybe pick up an injury. It was a very conservative second half. But, you know, Joe, you talked about it looking ahead. It's, you know, probably a good game plan. I think that's exactly what Jose Mourinho probably said at halftime looking into it. So my next question is kind of just a, a step back and looking at the season so far holistically and kind of comparing it to last year. Last year, Chelsea's team was not considered a very attacking team. Very much defend with 10, hit on the counterattack, look to break that way. Mainly because Jose Mourinho's words, we don't have a striker. Um, this year, I think it's much different that Chelsea uh, have scored many more goals, are looking to attack from the onset and not sit back. But I think the difference is we've given up some goals, especially in the last 10 minutes. So um, let's see, Dan, do you think that Chelsea maybe are conceding a little bit of defensive discipline in order to attack and be maybe a more exciting uh, style of, of soccer this season? Yeah, I, I think it's ad- adaptive to the squad that we have. I think when you don't have the option of being able to attack forward and score goals, you're going to have to find a way of winning that's more defensive. You know, when you have the option to go out and score, you, know, you may end up conceding more defensively. And I think it's also a matter of the team you know, coalescing. You know, we have players that haven't had the chance to link up before and who are getting used to each other. You know, we've, we've subbed Felipe Luis in a couple of times when you know, Aspilicueta was out. You know, we had a chance to you know, get Costa involved in the game. You know, we've had Fabregas and, and Matic really kind of you know, connect and restore presence, and we've also seen an emergence of Oscar. So with all of that happening, I think it, it is more exciting football. You know, there's been plenty of times where we have been fantastically defensive, and I think it's just more you know, misses in a moment versus a larger tactical deficiency. Joe, do you agree with that um, opinion? I mean, what are your kind of comparisons between last year and this year, and if they are definitely kind of giving up a little defensive responsibility in order to be more all-out attacking? I think there have been quite significant stylistic uh, changes that Mourinho has made this season. I think probably if you look... Even even starting defensively, you look at how far Branislav Ivanovic and uh, even Aspiliqueta are pushing forward. Um, particularly against some of the weaker teams, I think against West Brom, they they almost resembled sort of traditional wingers at some points. Uh, Branner was kind of standing on the touchline. Aspi was getting really far forward. So there seems to be a lot more onus to to attack from the back, which is really good to see. But also the profile of player. I mean, the the fact we now have Fabregas uh, starting as a kind of deeper midfielder, his range of passing and his vision and his ability to pick aggressive attacking passes almost every time he touches the ball completely changes the dynamic of how we play so I think we're, we're always kind of as fans looking at particularly last season how slow some of the build-up was and 
now you see Fabregas get the ball, he'll turn and he'll ping a pass into Hazard between two players, which maybe someone last season, Ramirez or Mikel, probably don't have the ability to pass that, you know, make that kind of particular pass. I think we're also seeing a lot more this season with Costa um, kind of spearheading the team, is that teams don't actually respect the fact that we have a striker. So I think one of the things I noted last season in particular was when Torres was playing that Torres would make all these amazing runs up front, but because teams didn't respect what he would do when he eventually got the ball, they didn't even notice him. So I think Crystal Palace was kind of the, the kind of defining moment where he made this amazing run and both Crystal Palace centre-backs just completely ignored him because it was almost like, well, if he gets the ball, he's probably going to stick it 10 yards wide anyway, so what's the point? But if you actually watch this season, particularly with Costa, and uh, probably more notable for the penalty that Hazard won, Costa actually runs all the way across the 18-yard box and pulls, uh, I think it was Mertesacker, about 15 yards away from where he should be to allow Hazard to actually burst into that space and actually get the foul from Koscielny. And having him up front now, um, from an attacking perspective, actually means that all of these are great attacking creative players have great, are getting a lot more time, are getting a lot more space, are getting a lot more ball in, in one-on-one situations. And for someone like Hazard, who last season was almost getting triple marked by teams, the fact that Costa is now there, the fact that the ball is actually coming to him a lot quicker from Fabregas, the fact that fullbacks are actually pushing up to help him, he's now getting into situations in, in games where he's getting one-on-one with his fullback all the time. And, you know, there really is only one result. He's almost probably every time he touches the ball in a one-on-one situation, you expect him to go past his fullback and do something with the ball, or whether it's uh, you know a cross or he cuts the ball back or whatever. I think from just from an attacking perspective, just the players that we now have, it's it's completely shifted the profile of the team, almost psychologically from the other team's perspective as well. Is that they're now they're now absolutely terrified that when Fabregas picks the ball up, you know, is he going to put a ball over the top for Costa to run on and score like he did against Arsenal? Is he going to ping the ball as a hazard like he's done many times this season? Is he going to ping it into Oscar? Is he going to find Brandon Sabovanovic on the right? Even Matic, you know, Matic's reign of passing is fantastic. Same, the same problem with Hazard, you know, can we now afford to leave Hazard by himself? Because that means that actually, you know, Diego Costa is going to be one-on-one with a defender in the area. And his movement's so good that if the ball comes in, he's going to be in front of a defender pretty much every time. He's going to be able to get something on the ball. So... I think a lot of it is is attacking intent. I think Mourinho is pushing players up, but also really just the profile of the play that we now have in the team, the problems that they pose for opposition teams, it's completely different to last season because as I said from sort of almost from a, a mental or psychological point of view, the way that you treat Fabregas on the ball in midfield compared to perhaps Ramirez, who you'd expect him to run with the ball, is completely different. You're now completely fearful of the fact that he can put a ball over the top, put it wide, put it short, do or dribble through midfield. And the fact that Oscar has all of, all of a sudden really put his game together. He's almost now the complete player in everything that he can do. He can, he's coming into these wonderful pockets of spaces. He's, he's sort of switching with Hazard. He's switching with Fabregas. There's so much movement now in this team compared to last season. It, it, it's almost completely... Um, completely a different side altogether. Although there's only been a few key pieces added, so you know I think it's it's really it's a mixture of uh, being a little bit more aggressive uh, with the ball, but I think it's really just the the players that Mourinho now has has, has given them the ability to actually kind of put a game plan in place that stretches opposition in, in almost absolutely every direction. I think that's what we're seeing this season, particularly in some of the games that we've played particu- uh, that, that we've played really well in. I think Arsenal at home is a great example. Um, you know, they actually came for the first time to Stamford Bridge and played quite defensive for, for an Arsenal team. It's quite interesting to watch that they actually they actually tried to be tactical for a change, which for Wenger is probably a first in his entire career. But, um, you know, we're actually we're getting a lot of respect from opposition now. Um but I think again that will change. You know, teams who are sitting back against us now, they're still getting beat. You know, we're still finding ways to get the ball to Hazard, to get it to Costa, and to score goals. So I think as the season progresses, these sort of ten ten men walls that we're seeing in almost every game, 
teams will, will they're going to have to change that because it's not working. You know, if you come to Stamford Bridge and defend, you get beat. That's kind of what's happening this season. And the more the season progresses, the more that means teams. I think Gary Neville and Carragher said it quite a bit on the on, on one of the sort of the, the commentary channels. They were saying that teams are now coming to Stamford Bridge, and they're expecting not necessarily expecting to lose, but you know they they know that they're that they're almost fearful of, of what's going to happen to them. And I think that's that that mentality. That's what we want to really pounce on on these teams. I think it's almost a psychological effect that Mourinho has on them with the, this, this group of players, so he can hurt you now in so many different ways, and that's. Really, I wouldn't say necessarily it's tactical, but that's been the, the biggest difference this season is that we've got, we've now got so many weapons from so many different positions on the pitch. It's almost impossible to, to, to really kind of, you know, load your cards or load your players in one area to stop a certain player. You can't just stop Hazard this season because there's four other players who will score. You can't just yeah. try and mark Diego Costa because Hazard will beat three players and put it in the goal or Fabregas will find an amazing pass or will score from a set piece. So, you know, I think it's it's just been a massively, it's been such an amazing development over the summer that we've added these, you know, a small cluster of players and it's completely changed the dynamic of the team. Um, I think going forward, that's only going to continue to work in our favour as teams realise that being defensive doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get anything when you play us. So, you know, really, really big positives, I think, for Mourinho this season and hopefully uh, going forward, that's going to be a continuing trend that we shall um we shall hopefully you know, be privileged to see going forward, particularly if they can manage to play like they did against West Brom in that sort of first 40, 40, uh, 30, 40-minute period. Um, again, said that was some of the best football I've seen Chelsea play ever. If they can do that over 90 minutes, you know, I'd, I'd gladly pay three times what I'm paying for my season ticket at the moment. <laughs> don't don't tell them that, Joe. <laughs> I, I won't. I won't. We won't <laughs> on that one. Probably, Just but... like the, uh, the, yeah. We're pouncing on other teams' weak defences. That's okay. Yeah. Goulet's gone now. His spies are gone, so it's fine. Oh man! Hey Nick, what do you do? You think this is a part of the agreement that Jose and um, Abramovich have? We know that Abramovich has always just desired this beautiful football. Do you think that's part of like the discussions that that they had before he came back? Well, I I don't think there's any doubt that that's always been the objective, and we've been through our fair share of managers that have tried to get us um, to the to the level that we're playing at right now, and there's been. Uh, you know, little glimpses here and there with with previous managers that that we can play this style of football. Uh, the one thing I would say uh, is I, I don't necessarily think it was a an ultimatum like, hey, play this style of football or or you know stop being here. This is a this is an evolution. I think that Abramovich now fully trusts Mourinho to to execute the vision that they have. And uh, whereas before it was you know let's let's buy the world's priciest squad and and have them power through the midfield and, and uh, chip balls over and have Drogba score. This is a, a whole different makeup. And so by the by the transfers that have come in in the last three or four years, the team has had to adjust. And you saw that adjustment you know, happening in, in 2012 and 2013. This is the culmination of that um, now. And you see a player like Nemanja Matic, who you know, I think we've all agreed has been our most important player in the, in the short spell of the season, uh, he completely changed, you know, how the midfield looked, and then bringing in Fabregas—that's a whole different dynamic. And I think the tactical flexibility that Mourinho has with this squad is probably the scariest thing about it, uh, because if we need to load up the midfield and, and play John Obi Mikel as a true holder, move Matic up, or or bring in Ramirez, or you know, you know, whatever the case may be, then we can move Fabregas up to play a true number ten, put Oscar out wide have some interchange. If we really want to go attacking, uh, then we leave Matic back as, as the true holder uh, and and bring in a whole plethora of uh, attacking talent. We haven't even touched on, you know, 
Andre Sherla, who you know was was on fire coming out of the World Cup, has kind of slipped a little bit. But there is uh, so much uh, to like about the squad as it's currently uh, constructed. The one thing I would say is is we haven't really seen. You know, I think Drogba is is going to play a role in this season, a big role. But we haven't really seen Loic Remy uh, due to injury, and I'm I'm intrigued to see that if he is the type of player that that we expect him to be. Um, when he's come on, he's looked confident, but not always the most skillful. Uh, so I think we really do need that backup striker to to complete the team. But other than that, I think the the flexibility is there for Chelsea to play whatever kind of football they want to play. Awesome. Well, I definitely think we are all in agreement that West Brom, uh, all summed up, is just mission accomplished. Got the win, got good goals, didn't pick up any injuries, is a well-managed game. So the unbeaten streak is alive and well. Um, Moving on, and I want to keep Joe on because it sounds like he is very um, well-informed on this. I have recently joined the Chelsea Supporters Trust online. And they just had their annual survey sent out. Is that right, Joe? That's correct, yeah. Okay. So I got an email from the group. And it's great because it will help you stay informed of what like the exact concerns are and the improvements that are going on at Chelsea. So, again, fully recommend all of you, no matter where you're at, to join it. If nothing else, just to stay informed. And real quick, just the the key points from the survey of the Chelsea fans' uh, concerns were they're concerned about the atmosphere. We knew that. Their desire for more affordable tickets, especially for younger supporters. We've talked about that. And then the approval for supporters for the um, club subsidies for away tickets. Um, So those are kind of the big three hot topics, and I don't think that'll really surprise anyone. Those are kind of been things that have been discussed all season but if you could, Joe, uh, just give us a real quick kind of summary of the Chelsea Supporters Trust and then, like, the value of joining it. Because I know you know Tim, who's the chairman. Yeah. So the the Chelsea Supporters Trust is effectively, it's trying to be sort of an amalgamation of kind of all the various Chelsea fan groups sort of globally and to give them a, a kind of significant voice and link with the club. Um know for a fact that the guys at the trust will have conversations with people who actually work at the club so there is an actual direct link um, Tim and other board members will meet with those at the club to discuss certain issues so really anything anyone wants to raise you know even down to anything sort of the kind of minute detail is, is always something that, that's entertaining there um, in terms of the, the trust I mean I don't think there's necessarily a goal perhaps with other sort of football trust to get ownership of the club obviously I don't think we could probably collude to outspend the Bramovich but um, the, the sort of end goal really is that they would like some sort of fan representation on the board um, trying to determine even if it's kind of in a non-executive capacity trying to sort of get a, a kind of bit more of a feel for the, the fans in, in kind of more of a formal position at the club they also extend to, to overseas fans as well access to tickets to games and, and anything of that nature you know club tours and, and how and how they're kind of going and where we're potentially going in the future those sorts of things that matter to, to overseas fans awesome uh, yeah anytime we can get the fans voices heard and kind of get everyone on the same page um, that's just only going to make Chelsea a stronger club with their fans uh, real quickly let's just take a, uh, a brief look ahead at the games coming up um, the next opponent we have is Schalke in Germany, and uh, Nick, you know who their new, their new newly appointed head coach is? 
I believe that is uh, one Roberto Di Matteo, actually. So there is a, uh, a headline for you. Exactly. That will be an interesting. I believe it's his first time, um, probably reuniting with Chelsea. So yeah, it is. Uh, and Mourinho just had a great quote today um, that said uh, when he was asked about the the emotion that's going to be in the stadium, uh, said that I don't play against him. If we play against each other, he wins because he's a better player than I am. So uh, obviously Mourinho knows that the fans, Mateo, for what he did in uh, 2012, um, I think he's trying to squash as much of that <laughs> ahead by using humor as he can. So um, it should be an, an interesting atmosphere. Obviously nothing but love for, for Robbie. Definitely. Return of the Champions League will be at the Veltons Arena. It will be this upcoming Tuesday. Um, you know, it'll be one versus two in the group standings. Chelsea are on eight points. Schalke in second on five points. And uh, the first leg, it was a 1-1 draw at home. And I, I believe that was Chelsea's first tie of the season where they didn't actually win a game. Does that sound right? Yeah, I believe that's correct. Um, you know, I think that this match, kind of heading into uh, predictions... I think the, the form we're in right now, uh, yeah, I'm going to go with a, a 2-1 uh, victory for us away. I think, I think I'm going to hit a uh, – I'm going to go 3-1. I'm going to continue my 3-1 streak. I think that there's goals in this team, and especially the importance of, of this match is, is big. So I think a, a strong win, um, conserving some of the goals from what Saturday could have brought, uh, I think we'll be all right. Um, Joe, what do you think? Let's go ahead and get your prediction while we've got you. I will go for a... I'll go 2-1. I think they will probably score, but I think we'll do just enough to see it out. I think, yeah, energy conserving at the first goal. Hopefully we will uh, put that in good use. And two early goals, and they'll score a late goal, probably Huntelaar, if he's not injured. Um, you know, with all that being said, I'll kind of split hairs, and I'll go 2 nothing. Um, I'd be impressed if he got the shutout, but you know I got burned for saying we were going to concede this last week, so I'm going to go ahead and say we get the shutout again. Um, and then just looking ahead to the next Premier League game, we are playing Sunderland at the Stadium of Light. It will be next Saturday. Um, right now, Chelsea, as we know, are in first place undefeated, 32 points. They'll be facing uh, a bit of a struggling Sunderland in 14th place with 13 points. I mean, is that fair to say they're kind of struggling? Well, I mean, they're not Queens Park Rangers, so I mean, I, I guess you could say they're only mildly struggling. They're existing in the Premier League. That is, is the best thing I could say. And there's no love for our American striker Josie Altador in the team. Yeah, uh, he's he's struggling. I would be surprised if he was there in January. It, he looks so lively playing for the U.S. and and when you see him play for Sunderland, it's like there's, you know, fifty pound ankle weights on him. We have a nice little Chelsea connection with Sunderland though, with Gus Poyet, don't we, Joe? Yeah, he. Um, I suppose I mean it really depends on who you, who you talk to. So he's he's either a fantastic player or the person who just got his badge when he was playing against us. So there is a, there's a little bit of a animosity there, but uh, I for one, I'm, I think yeah, he's a been, he's a fantastic player here. Particularly that sort of late '90s, early 2000s, time so Liren and others there were uh, were pretty exceptional. So, um, 
yeah, I still like him for that goal that he uh, he chipped to Zola. I think it was actually against Sunderland where he scooped it and Zola ran and volleyed it. Actually, no, Zola Zola chipped it to him and he volleyed it in. So, yeah, that was uh, that was one of my favourite goals. So, yeah, I mean, Chelsea Kadesh are still there, but I think probably for uh, away fans who who go to uh, who go to Stadium Light, he's probably not the most liked uh, manager that we, or the most liked manager in the Premier League for us. All right, so we'll go ahead and while you're rolling, give us your prediction. Um, I think it should be quite comfortable. I, I reckon 2-0, but a very, very comfortable 2-0. Nick? Uh, I I have no idea. The stadium light is, is really a tough place to play. Um, I'm, I'm going to go for a 1-0 victory. And the bullish Nick is uh, is a little, little downtrodden. I know. I don't, I don't know what to think going up there. Last year was, was a little bit tough, but... Uh, anytime you go up to the northeast, I think it's a little, a little difficult. So yeah, I think it's going to be a 3-0. I think if we, you know, get the right result in in Chalka, get a chance to, you know, rest accordingly, that you know we'll get a chance to to come out and continue pounding the victories we need to uh, buffer us properly for the remainder of the season. I agree with it all. I mean, I'm not as superstitious about black cats as as you know Nick is being. But, um, <laughs> You know, I think it's going to be a bit of a tough match. They're traveling to Germany. Thankfully, it's Tuesday coming back, um, so they might have a little heavier legs, but I don't think that that's going to affect it too much. And I'm going to uh, side with Joe on this uh, and go 2 nothing as well. So remember, we want your predictions. Go to We Ain't Got No History in the comments. Tell us not only the scoreline, but who you think will score. And we'll get that up and running again since nobody, that's right, none of you that listened to this got it right last week. So the challenge has been thrown. All right. Well, I think that'll pretty much be a wrap for this episode, but uh, let's kind of hit up some final thoughts. Dan? Uh, you know, I think uh, all the final thoughts are just, uh, you know, if you're looking for a new dress attire heading into winter, uh, it's a matter of uh, gloves and a uh, short sleeve shirt if you want to uh, follow our fearless leader into battle or into the winter cold. Oof. Yeah, coming from the guy that lives in Florida. Real yeah. cool. Uh, hey, <laughs> hey, it's a style I'll rock all, all <laughs> winter. I'll have no problem with it. <laughs> Nick, final thoughts? Oh, man, I, I'm very intrigued to... Uh, to see Oscar uh, against Sunderland, I feel like he's going to have a big match. Um, I think his his playing style and the way that they set up defensively are going to um, match very nicely, and I think he'll have a, a pretty good game. Phenomenal. I want to just wrap up and say, Joe, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's been a fantastic opportunity to get to know someone who is you know, there week in, week out, and just thank you for all of your insight. We appreciate it. No, thank you guys. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you for the wonderful articles you continue to write on. Uh, we don't got no history either. Those are uh, again, if you haven't read them, uh, you're se severely disenfranchising yourself as a Chelsea fan or a reader of great, great written articles. Thank you for that. That will do it for this week, Chelsea fans. But don't worry, the London is Blue podcast will be back next week. So until then, make sure to follow us on Twitter at London Blue Pod to keep the banter going and send us your topics and questions at London is Blue Podcast at gmail.com. Keep the blue flag flying high, Chelsea fans. 
bought more jewelry, more Louis V. My mama couldn't get through to me. The drama. Jose, 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 Jose.